Hi, I'm Arlen Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and today I have a couple of call-ins. Um, I've got a call-in from Che Webster of Roleplay Rescue talking about my call-ins um, to his show. So I'm going to play that and then sort of talk a little bit in more detail about some of my um, thoughts and ideas based on listening to his interview with uh, Daniel Jones, which was a really great – if you're not listening to Roleplay Rescue, you should be. Uh, and then I have some comments from Jason, um, especially about my uh, game plans and stuff like that and what he's played and what he thought worked and didn't, um, which is really cool, too. So I'm going to have to respond to that. Um, and, yeah, I think there's going to be I, – I promised in yesterday's episode that there was going to be more kind of theory stuff. And I think there's going to be a fair bit of theory stuff in the response to Che. Um, so, yeah, let us get into it. Hey, Arlen, it's Che from Roleplay Rescue. Just a quick call to say thank you so much for all the calls you made about Daniel James's interview. Um, what I did is I, I've downloaded those messages and um, I've uh, kind of, I don't know whether he will agree, but I have invited Daniel to have a listen through and record one or more segments in response. Um, and if he wants to do that, then I will share those. Obviously, I'll, I think I'll collect your calls and his responses into an episode of its own and, and perhaps put it out as a bonus or something. So um I don't know, but thank you at least. I mean, for all of the callers, they're fantastic. Um, and there's so much to talk about. And I feel like it would be great to get Daniel to respond to them. So that's what I'm fingers crossed for. But let's, uh, let's see if he's willing, you know, no pressure in the end. Thank you so, so much. It was really wonderful to have such a strong response from you because um, I really respect you too. Game on, man. So yeah, Che Webster, as always, being super nice, super positive. He's a really great guy. Like I said in the intro, if you're not listening to Roleplay Rescue, maybe try it out because uh, it's uh, it's pretty cool. It's a really positive, really good, uh, really good podcast to listen to. I am actually right now doing a uh, all the way back to the beginning, up to the front listen through i i started over i didn't so che i have to admit i didn't start listening to your podcast for a while um partly because i sort of got into the community after um you had already started and then um also the the kind of um express purpose of roleplay rescue getting back into rpgs was not i felt like something i needed kind of help with because i was i was sort of by the time i got into the community into rpgs and all that sort of stuff so anyway um but uh it's a really really good podcast um and i am listening to it from the very beginning um and it's it's great Che's a, a really good guy and you you listen to him and and how nice he is about my absurd number of call-ins i i called in for i think uh, it's added up to something like 15 minutes of call-ins um to roleplay rescue um so yeah anyway it may have even been more um 
Anyway, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was something that I have been thinking a fair bit about, which is um, something that uh, was touched on in the the specific episode that I responded to that Che is talking about my responses to, um, which is that uh, Daniel, the, the guest, talks about this idea of the difference between methodology and mechanisms. And I thought that was a really interesting discussion, and I've thought a lot about it, partly because I have, um, for sort of a long time now, thought that game books don't do a great job sometimes of distinguishing between methodology and mechanisms that, you know, the, the GM guide section of the book is often largely methodology, whereas the, um, the sort of mechanical stuff is in its own chapters and write a, a sort of standard laid out GM, a standard laid out book has like, here's the rules. And then here's a GM section about GMing this game. Um, sometimes that's in its own separate book and that sort of stuff. But that a lot of that is um, methodology, not mechanisms. Um, and at the same time, one of the cool things about methodology is that it is so um, broadly applicable that, in a sense, you can um, you can take methodology from one game and, to some degree, apply it to maybe any game, but certainly to other games that are similar, um, and do stuff with the kind of it seems like that is related to a sort of uh, best practices in RPGs concept that um, I'm really interested in. So my, my classic example is fronts in Dungeon World. Fronts in Dungeon World are basically just there are NPCs in the world with goals and ambitions and things that they want and they can operate to try to make those things happen. That's sort of at the core what a front is. Um, there's details about how to run a front and that you should, you know, signal to the players, especially fronts are generally used with um, bad NPCs or NPCs that are opposed to the players. And so there's stuff about like foreshadowing the fronts and signaling and staging and all that sort of stuff. But at its core, the the sort of concept of a front as NPCs with goals and the capacity to fulfill those goals or to work towards fulfilling those goals is is um, really, you know, that's something you can apply to almost any RPG. Almost any um, RPG world is going to have NPCs who have goals, even if it's, you know, just the T-Rex wants to hunt and needs to eat things. That's, that's an NPC with a goal at its sort of most basic level. And you can do the whole dungeon world, you know, showing off things like, you know, you find the T-Rex's footprint in its hunting grounds and get a sense of like, you know, Oh, it's, you know, the big, the big bad thing is out there and all that sort of stuff. Um, Daniel's specific talk about methodology really focuses on um, methodology as a way to be to create immersion in a world that is different than our own for the player. And specifically, his um, focus is on sensory immersion. Um, the idea of, I mean, it's a it's a 
pretty straightforward concept that we are sensory beings who have all this, you know, raw material given to our senses that we then interpret in the brain. And so the idea is, well, if you can do your best to give the the player that raw material and then let them interpret it as their character, do their best to interpret it as their character, that that's a, um, a process that is very similar to the way we sort of operate in the world naturally. And therefore um, you create that immersion in the world, that feeling of it's more than just a feeling of the verisimilitude of the world. It's a um, yeah, it's, it's immersion. It's the, the feeling of like the verisimilitude of the character also on some level, I think that's a, a part of it too. Um, which is really, I think it's a really interesting thing. There's sort of a lot, um, to that and it's difficult to do. It's not always easy to go into, uh, that sort of sensory description, especially it's not easy to do it with, um, to do it well. I think it's sort of like the way that, um, sensory prose works in that it's sort of easy to um, easy to get it wrong in the sense of feeling unnatural and feeling overwrought and feeling um, or feeling there, there's a sort of very fine balance to how much sensory detail you give because too much is definitely too much and not enough doesn't allow for the player or the reader to um, immerse themselves effectively. Right. Cause it's not enough. Um, one of my ideas is that um, sensory immersion is really good, but sensory immersion is to me a sort of more um, simulationist side of the uh, the the kind of game the 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 game theory triangle, um, and that there's also a sort of narrative immersion that comes not necessarily from sensory detail um, unless sensory detail is part of the nature of the narrative, but that comes from um, immersion in the, uh, the genre that you're playing and the way that you're, what you're playing emulates that genre and all of that sort of stuff. Um, that to me, so I kind of go back and forth on simulation versus narrativism because there's a lot that I like about simulationist um, play. There's also stuff that I kind of don't like. And it, it, it seems to me that there's a similarity between the two because they have a similar relationship to the fiction as opposed to the kind of gamist pole, which has a, a different relationship to the fiction that um, simulationist and narrativist because narrativist in some ways is just simulating a world that doesn't quite work like our own. It's simulating a world that works like the genre that you're trying to emulate. Um, at least that's sort of what it, how it seems to me in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I um, 
I really liked, so I, Che's discussion with Daniel was great. Um, this uh, methodology thing, I'm going to have to think about more because, so there's some, some other examples that I can give. Um, fiction first. Um, fiction first is a thing that a lot of story games talk about that you're, the conversation that you have at the table, because what happens at the table is in uh, story games definitely depicted as a conversation. The idea that the conversation that you have at the table is in fiction first terms. It's about what's happening in the fiction and not how we're going to model that mechanically. And that's again, something that I think you can do in a lot of games. Um, not necessarily every game and not necessarily every game all the time, certainly. Um, there are some games where that sort of breaks down because of gamist concerns, especially if it's kind of complicated how the game is going to model that stuff in the the game itself. Uh, how the game is going to model the fiction um, is important. And one of the advantages that story games have in that sense is that often they model the fiction very simply. Um, but fiction first is something that you can definitely do to add to almost any game, I think. Um, which is a really, it, it gets back into, so that's a, another sort of example of methodology, right? Because fiction first is not something that the rules are likely to tell you that you have to do. Um, fiction first is something about the way that you play the game at the table beyond just the rules. And that that sort of ties in with another a discussion that I want to have at some point, which is the relationship between the, the book that the rules come in and the rules themselves and the game at the table. And all three of them, it seems to me, can be what we mean when we say RPGs. And that causes confusion obviously that that kind of um conflation of these different three different things that are similar and are related to each other but are not the same thing can definitely cause uh confusion so and and can make it hard to talk about rpgs especially in really um detailed ways you know you need to define your terms before you use your terms and all too often and i'm totally guilty of it myself we don't define our terms before we use them and just sort of assume that the terms are understood um which is a an issue anyway um, yeah, I think that's almost everything that I wanted to talk about. Um, the interview with Daniel, I'm going to say again, it was really cool. Um, you should listen to Roleplay Rescue. The stuff about methodology was not the only thing that was discussed, but it's sort of what I wanted to talk about today. Um, but yes, what are, I, I'd really, um, if you're listening to this, um, listener, um, I'd really like to hear what you think some of the sort of methodology best practices in RPGs are. What do you think is like the the things that you can apply to almost any or to most RPGs that make the game closer to what you want from the game um, and that aren't necessarily 
built around interaction with the rules themselves or that maybe have an element of rules interaction because that's sort of what uh, Daniel was talking about. One of the things is like for um, perception checks and things like that have the GM role so that the player doesn't know whether they were successful or not. They kind of have to be immersed in the idea of the, the player knows what the character knows. And I, I will go back to one of the things that I have talked about a little bit before, but I'll say it again here explicitly, is that I don't necessarily think that's the only type of immersion available. And specifically, I think when you get into this idea of um, stances, the kind of stance being a relationship between the player and the character and the game master, that you can... Um, you can have immersion in almost any stance. Some of them lend themselves to immersion more than others. Um, but that also there are different types of immersion that follow along with those different stances. And so, for example, I think the, um, the more authorial player stance that I've been reading about in Sword and Sorcerer and in Sorcerer in general um, is one that is really built around um, built around a sense of immersion that is um, to me it feels sort of like Aristotelian tragedy the idea of the the sort of um, build up of difficult emotions and then the purging that happens, right? That's, that's one of the things that Aristotle talks about in the poetics and, and about tragedy is this idea that there's this, you know, complicated, messy experience that is happening that is building up all of these sort of complicated and messy emotions in the person. And then there's a sort of purging that happens through the culmination of the tragedy that leaves the person, um, the audience member, healthier ultimately right that they've gotten all this stuff out of them that was sort of in them the whole time um but that it is an improvement to their being um through that and it seems to me that the authorial positioning the authorial stance is um similar to that that you're really focused on not the character's sensory experience but their emotional experience and um, crafting an emotional experience for the characters that will resonate with the players. Um, and I think that is immersive too. It's just immersive in kind of a different way. And I'm interested in exploring that kind of ways of immersion as well as um, the, the kind of methodology question. Wow, Arlen, lots to talk about there in that episode, your latest one. So I'm going to bounce around a bit as I try to remember what all you, you said. Swords Without Master, I've played that, and I've played With Great Power, second edition. I think that's the right term, the right title, which is the superhero version of Swords Without Master. Uh, Swords Without Master probably worked a little bit better. Um, it's a little, little freer form. Um, it's interesting. It's about as far from an RPG as you can get. You know what I mean? As light as you can get before you're into just straight storytelling. But it's a fun game. I enjoyed it. Um, my my son played when we played the um, with great power, and and that like I say it worked okay. It's it's there's more structure to with great power with a superhero version, 
But Swords Without Master does exactly what it's supposed to do. For sword and sorcery, it's great. But you, you need, like you say, you need people that are really ready to spin some tales and, and do narrative. So what else did you talk about that I've played or looked at? Facilitated. There, I was talking with Dave Aldrich. There's a one of the worlds for that, one of the setting books. We were looking for a martial arts game and a game that would invoke the idea of playing martial arts and invoke different styles where the different styles felt differently without being too, too crunchy. And we got talking about a fate system called T-I-A-N-X-I-A. And it looks interesting. I've started reading through it. I've finished reading through it. Nothing else has really happened with that. But yeah, Fate's definitely an interesting game. Um, PDQ. Well, I guess I'll go to the next, give you another call. The 60-second call limit's on Anchor, a little frustrating. Um, so PDQ, um, Jaws of Six Serpents. We actually, the the gentleman that introduced me to Barbarians Lemoria and we were playing with, we were going to start up a Jaws Six Serpents campaign. We make characters up for it. And then due, due to the current COVID stuff and all, he had to drop out. And so it never got developed. So I'm still waiting to play that game. I know a couple people have played it or other PDQ games that really like them. I I would definitely be interested in trying that. I'd be interested in playing any any of the games. But Jaws also has what I'd be in, which I would also be interested in doing. Jaws has a offshoot that does um, pulp 20s like crime fighter stuff like the shadow or doc savage they, they have a separate set of rules do that kind of thing which might be kind of fun but yeah awesome so that was uh jason connerly calling in jason also has a podcast it is nerds rpg variety cast and it's really good too um he put it on hiatus for a little while um when you listen to this, it may well be back. And uh, if so, you should go listen to his podcast. Um, first off, Jason, it's great to hear that you have uh, tried out a number of these uh, systems that I am interested in, partly because I, I really look forward to talking with you more about some of these. Yeah, Swords Without Master, it's definitely a long way away from the kind of traditional RPG experience um, it's, it's, you know, I'm really, I think that's part of what excites me about it on some level is that I'm, I'm kind of interested in seeing, um, how it actually, uh, plays out when the play is so different, if that makes sense, um, as a kind of experimental thing, cause I am, I am. Nothing if not an experimenter with my RPGs. I'm always interested in, in running the experiments and trying out new things and all of that sort of stuff. So that's part of what interests me. It also, it has some really high praise from uh, a couple of people that have played it. Um, yeah, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm wondering sort of uh, what would be the the best way to figure out how to play it among other things. Um, obviously there's there's a sort of tactile element to handing the dice to players that you couldn't do online. Um, but I don't think I could play it with players who know their sword and sorcery well enough except online, especially during the the whole um, plague crisis. 
So, you know, um, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that you, you played it and enjoyed it. I will um, get myself a copy of with great power or um, that was what it's called, right? With great power, the superhero version and um, read through that and see what I like and what I don't and all of that sort of stuff and uh, maybe convince some of my friends. And of course you are invited to, to play. Um, yeah. So uh, Tianjia or Tianxia, I think is how you say T-I-A-N-X-I-A. Um, I actually have um, a bunch of the books for it. I, at one point when I sort of first got into Fate, I um, bought a bunch of the, the Tianxia books in addition to the Fate books themselves. Um, and then looked at them a little bit and thought, ooh, this is really cool, but I don't know when I'm going to get to do anything with it. And so that kind of faded. Um, but I definitely like to get back into that. Um, I kind of wonder about, so uh, Fate, I talked a little bit about, I haven't ever um, really, I, I mean, I haven't ever run it or played it really, but it seems kind of um, something about it seems sort of hard to to get at I guess in in some ways that um, I'm not entirely sure I, I guess what I am saying is that I am sort of concerned about my ability to run it well um, which is interesting because icons for instance has a lot of sort of stuff from fate in addition to stuff from some other games. And I really like that game icons, I think is a really good supers game. Um, and it has that sort of stuff from fate. So I don't know. Um, I guess my sort of concern is that in fate, especially in fate accelerated, because it's based on your approach that you would just always use the same approach every time. Right. Um, which I guess you get around by having varying difficulties based on the type of approach. You say like, well, if you're nice to these people, they'll probably help you. But if you're a dick to them, then you're not going to get help unless you uh, roll really well into bullying them, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I don't know. The Fate books uh, have a ton of stuff about how to run the game and a lot of a lot of worked examples and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's I think it's a matter of sort of doing a deep dive into that system and figuring out what I want to do with it and then actually trying to do it. So um, again, you are definitely invited if you are interested in um, playing some Fate with me sometime. Um, Jaws of the Six Circuits and PDQ. I like Fate. I haven't played any PDQ games. Um, I kind of feel like there's a sort of similarity to something like Hero Quest, where you define your character's traits and qualities, and it's basically you know anything that your character uses to solve problems is a um, a quality or a trait, and you just have a, a number associated with that based on how good they are at solving problems, and that seems kind of similar to the PDQ stuff. Um, 
I'm interested in, cause one of the things that uh, there's a sort of um, contention, I think for me, almost between different types and different ideas of sword and sorcery, that there's sort of a question of, um, well, it, it comes down to sort of uh, the the nature of the visceral and the dangerous almost. Because I think um, there's a lot of presented danger in sword and sorcery stories. At the same time, for instance, Conan, we know Conan is going to survive everything that he faces, right? That's That's not really up for debate, the kind of traditional question of lethality is not really there in a lot of ways. It's more about seeing how is he going to pull this off than is he going to pull this off? And that's something that I think um, that sort of ties in with Swords Without Master because I think that's ultimately, right, that's sort of what I gather from the gameplay loop of Swords Without Master. That's what Swords Without Master is about is it's not a question of are your characters going to survive? Are they going to succeed? Are they going to be able to beat down their enemies and win and all that sort of stuff? But how are they going to do it? And so the players are tasked with coming up with how they're going to succeed at their goals. Um, but then how do you get that sense of kind of visceral danger if you don't really have any kind of rules structure built around, um, you know, dying or anything like that in, in a sense? And that's sort of an oversimplification. But what I what I really mean is that um, is it possible and is it just fine to have a game that doesn't have that um, kind of uh, like viscerality to, to wounds and stuff that um, does that, is that going to feel sword and sorcery to me in the way I expect it to? And I think it will um, in a lot of ways. Um, but the, the comparison in my mind is to something like blade of the iron throne, where you have this really simulationist combat system that is definitely going to, uh, you know, leave characters. It, it puts characters in serious lethal danger every time they draw sword. Um, and how does that kind of compare for sword and sorcery? I don't know. Um, I think I need to play some of these games and then do a podcast episode talking about that. But um, yeah, PDQ Jaws of the Six Serpents. I would really like to get that to the table sometime. Once again, Jason, you are invited. You, listener, if you are not Jason, are invited too. Um, if we can figure out a time that works for you guys to to play in one of my games, that would be really cool. Um, or more than one of you guys, if um, there are multiple listeners. Um, yeah, that uh, that's kind of the the stuff that I have in response to Jason. All right, that's it. That's the episode. That's all I got. Um, I'm still super excited for Sword and Scoundrel. I've been working on the uh, player document, the the world stuff, which by the time this episode actually goes out, um, hopefully will either be in the hands of the players or will be very close to getting into the hands of the players. Um, 
so that they can read about the world and figure out what sort of stuff interests them and what kind of conflicts they want to be involved in and all of that sort of stuff. And so that we can, we can work on building the drives together so that we can create that uh, gameplay loop that I talked about in the, the previous episode, the challenge drives use drama to, to, to overcome the challenges type thing. Um, but yeah, I didn't talk much about that in this episode. Um, we'll see what I talk about in the next episode because I have uh, a number of things kind of swimming around in my brain, ideas for different episode topics and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I hope you enjoyed. If you want to get in contact with me, you can leave a message here on Anchor like Jason and Che did. And um, that gives you a chance to have some audio content played on my podcast. And I'll respond to it and talk about it and all that sort of stuff. Um, in addition, if you want to get in contact with me, I'm also on Twitter. I am at Cows from Powis there. And I... Um, am on a number of discords which if you are listening to this podcast it seems likely that you are a part of at least one of those discord servers so um you can get in contact with me there all right i've been arlen walker i've been live from pelham's wasteland and i will see you next time take care everybody